Hello and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Today we're talking to Helen Cullen, author of The Lost Letters of William Wolfe, about why a hectic drafting process is nothing to be scared of, always being open to discovering new characters and storylines, and how to portray the realities of love. Lost letters have only one hope for survival. If they are caught between two worlds, with an unclear destination and no address of sender, the lucky ones are redirected to the Dead Letters Depot in East London for a final chance of redemption. Inside the damp rising walls of a converted tea factory, letter detectives spend their days solving mysteries. Missing postcodes, illegible handwriting, rain-smudged ink, lost address labels, torn packages, forgotten street names. They are all culprits in the occurrence of missed birthdays, unknown test results, bruised hearts, unaccepted invitations, silenced confessions, unpaid bills and unanswered prayers. Instead of longed for missives, disappointment floods post boxes from Land's End to Dunnet Head. Hope fades a little more every day when doorbells don't chime and doormats don't thud. William Wolfe had worked as a letter detective for 11 years. He was one of an army of 30, having inherited his position from his beloved uncle Archie. Almost every Friday throughout William's childhood, Archie, clad in a lime green leather jacket, rode his yellow Honda Daydream 305 over for tea, eager to share fish and chips doused in salt and vinegar served with a garlic dip and tales of the treasures rescued that day. Listening to Archie opened William's mind to the myriad extraordinary stories that were unfolding every day in the lives of ordinary people. In a blue-lined copybook, he wrote his favourites and unwittingly began what would become a lifelong obsession with storytelling, domestic mysteries and the secrets strangers nurse. What surprised William most when he started working there himself was how little Archie had exaggerated. People send the strangest paraphernalia through the post incomprehensible and indefensible, sentimental and valuable, erotic and bizarre, alive and expired. In fact, it was the dead animals that so frequently found their way to the inner sanctum of the postal system that had inspired the dead letter depot's name. A photo taken in 1937, the year it had opened, showed the original postmaster, Mr Frank Oliphant, holding a pheasant and hare aloft, with three rabbits stretched on the table before him. By the time William joined in 1979, it was a much more irregular occurrence, of course, but the name still endured. He still felt Archie's presence amid the exposed, red-brick walls of the depot, and some of the older detectives sometimes called William by his uncle's name. Their physical similarities were striking. Muddy brown curls, chestnut beards flecked with rust, the almond-shaped hazel eyes that flickered between shades of emerald green and cocoa, the bump in the nose of all wolf men. In a vault of football field proportions hidden below Shoreditch High Street, row upon row the peculiar flotsam and jetsam of life awaited salvation. Pre-war toy soldiers, vinyl records, military memorabilia, astrology charts, paintings, pounds and pennies, wigs, musical instruments, fireworks, soap, cough mixture, uniforms, fur coats, boxes of buttons, chocolates, photo albums, porcelain teacups and saucers, teddy bears, medical samples, seedlings, weapons, laundry, fossils, dentures, feathers, gardening tools, books, books, books. Copious myths and legends passed from one colleague to another. Stories of the once lost, but now found. Hi, Helen. 
Welcome to the Riff Raff Podcast. Hello, thanks so much for having me. Oh, we're so delighted to have you here. It's a real pleasure. Um, so for the list, for those of our listeners who've yet to read your brilliant debut, The Lost Letters of William Wolfe, please can you tell us what it's about? Okay, so The Lost Letters of William Wolfe is set in the Dead Letters Depot of East London, where leisure detectives spend their days solving the mysteries of all the mail that gets lost in the postal system. And William Wolfe is one of these leisure detectives. And he starts finding letters written by a woman called Winter to her great love whom she has never met. So she's writing off these letters like messages in a bottle and sending them out into the ether with no expectation that anyone will ever find them. But William does and ultimately becomes really fascinated by her and starts to question if in fact he could be the person she's writing to. Um, so on one level, the book is really a love letter to the lost art of letter writing. And um, it opens with an epigraph that is a line from a John Tom poem that says more than kisses letters mean souls. So that was kind of the starting point and the kickoff for me when I began writing the novel. But it also looks at this, the juxtaposition that I think exists between the way romantic love is portrayed in the arts and in media and culture, as opposed to the pragmatic reality of sustaining a relationship over a long period of time. And that's sort of where William is in his life. He, he is married to this woman called Claire, and their relationship has become really fractured. So these letters from the enigmatic winter come along at a time when he's really beginning to question his own ideas about love and what he can expect from love in his life. Wow. And it's the it's that second plot that I just want to pick up on. The depiction of the breakdown of Claire and William's marriage is one of the best I've ever read. And it took me a long time to read your book because I was going through a breakup at the Aww. time and I literally cried, I think, on every other page. Because Thanks, yes. What about me? Um, but... The observations you make about the very slow, almost sort of mundane fractures, such a great word, in a relationship that is just, you know, they're trying desperately to sustain it and keep it going. And it's just heartbreaking Mm. to read. And it's, I just don't think it's a topic that gets discussed enough in literature Mm. because it is such a subtle thing. It's not big rows all the time. It's those tiny little you know, comments or, you know, missed opportunities or miscommunications every day. And what was it about that? You mentioned you wanted to juxtapose it against Mm. the kind of, you know, Disney ideal. But Mm. what was it about that particular theme that you really wanted, that really drew your attention? Well, I think um, like at the very beginning of the chapter, William, it, it says something about William that he'd become really obsessed about the myriad extraordinary stories that were unfolding every day in the lives of ordinary people. And I think that's something that I gave to him that I, you know, that's true for myself. Um, I think that of all the things that happen to us in life, you know, the kind of romantic love stories are the things that seem to occupy so much of our emotional infrastructure and our headspace. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> preach, honestly. Like, yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I think um, when I when I began writing this book, I was single and had gone through a breakup. And by the time I finished it, I had found my great love. Aww. And I, so I think that I actually, I actually might start crying again. <laughs> So I do think that's really interesting because um, when I started out, I thought the book would tell a different story about love than when I finished it. 
Um, I think for me, there's something really painful about the death by a thousand paper cuts, you know, that causes a relationship to break down. And I really wanted to explore that. And, you know, there's I think the bit that we, you would have found upsetting that people have talked about before is that we see them when they first met and how much in love they are and how much they believe that this is going to endure forever. So then watching that sort of slowly collapse is kind of devastating. You oh, know. that first... Sorry, I actually <laughs> compose myself. Um, that first scene where they meet for the first time and they are so different, but yet they work so well together. And it's such a common story. Every love story focuses on the love and it mm-hmm. forgets that there is a flip side to yeah. that, which is that not all love lasts. No. Just, that's the problem in relationships, isn't it? You know, you think that everything's going to remain at that like lovely mm. level of like perfection because that's what that's when you're told that the story ends. You know, exactly. Like, yeah. It's like, you find that and then it just stays that way forever, but that's obviously not the case. No, yeah. and I think yeah. you either hear sometimes either the story of the happily in love, everything's wonderful, or you meet people after the break. Mm. You know, you don't often get to see the two sides of it. And I think that's something that's really tragic that happens us in life is that we remember the heartbreak, but we don't remember the love, mm. you know, that came before it because it's too hard to hold on to that and let someone go. Yeah. So you don't get to hold the two things. But sometimes you can hold on to that for ages. Exactly. I'm, I'm a prime example of that. <laughs> you relive it, don't you? Because you want to feel, you want to remember that you can feel that emotion. Mm. And I think the really crazy thing about all of this is that we are all totally in control of how we feel about everything that happens to us. You know, we can tell ourselves the story of our lives any way that we want to. You know, so you can decide that a relationship ended but was still really valuable to you and still something that you think of with love even if it didn't last forever and I'm a big believer in there being no plan B's in life it's just lots of plan A's Mm. you know and things don't have to last forever to have been really valuable so I think we meet William at a point in the story where he's trying to work out if they can salvage their marriage and if they should Mm. you know if actually love is enduring past the fractious place where they find themselves and getting to the other side or is it actually letting go and understanding that the way you imagine love in your life being may be found with someone else? I think that's really difficult. Mm. Oh, what a powerful sentiment to be writing about, though. Not, you know, if that idea of if we should continue. Oh, I just mm. think that's such a powerful thing. Mm. It is. And how much nicer it would be if we were taught that, you know, you should enjoy love while you have it and with the sort of no- knowledge that it won't necessarily last forever because that's not how it really goes no, so and like, that that's fine and yeah and that's absolutely fine yeah. and just to like enjoy it for what it was while it while it was the right thing for you mm. and yeah anyway we could talk about it for bloody <laughs> full of days so even though it obviously is like a real tearjerker at times it is also incredibly uplifting and life affirming <laughs> as well contrary um, to how yeah. you played yeah. it <laughs> yeah so even yeah. though we started with that and um, so there's you know there's been kind of this really notable surge in kind of uplit and um, why do you think there's why do you think there's such a thirst for stories like that that kind of make you feel mm. like you giving you a hug well I think probably they were always there and um, I mean it's quite funny because you know I obviously wrote this book years ago and then you spend years writing it and years publishing it and then you come out and you find you're part of a trend you know which is hilarious because you know it's so accidental and I think that um, publishers are working really hard all the time to give people an entry point into the novels that they're delivering so if they can 
put books together in, in a group that you, they can say, oh, if you like this, you'll also like this, mm. you know, then that makes it really helpful for them and helpful for booksellers and helpful for readers. So I think in some ways I'm just, you know, a happy accident that I came along at a time <laughs> where, you know, someone in the ether had decided, OK, this is going to be a trend now mm. in the way that it might have been, you know, psychological thrillers, you know, a year before. But I think that the world is a really dark, scary place at the moment. Yeah. And we we all sort of need a bit of hope and I'm I was actually at a really interesting event at the Hillingdon Literary Festival with Emma Flint and Rihanna Lucy Coslett. Oh my God, how amazing is Emma Flint? I love her so much. She's amazing. Yeah. And one of the audience asked, you know, why do novelists write so much about, you know, the dark side of the human experience? And, you know, we were talking about it in the panel and saying, well, you know, because that's obviously often where people are really interesting people live, you know, sort of in those extremities. And while I think that's true, I also think there's something really fascinating about why we endure when it seems impossible to, you know, and I'm really interested in hope and where we can find it. Mm. Um, So I think the best compliment I ever received about my writing was from my mentor, Michelle Roberts, and she said that I wrote with an absence of cynicism that wasn't very cool (laughs) (laughs) but that she found really enriching and I'm actually really pleased with that you know I've never been cool anyway but um, I think think that's (laughs) but I think that's something actually that I am quite proud of you know the kind of absence of cynicism because it is much easier I think to be cynical and a bit sort of yeah you know dismissive of everything but I think we really need hope to keep us going yeah and like that and that's a decision isn't it to change the way you think about things and if you can choose to focus on the positives and stuff like that like that's what the whole world needs to do right now like folk like and so if you yeah. if you can be part of that with your writing absolutely my brother you. told me this crazy story that I'm not going to um represent properly <laughs> but about a man who was on holidays and all these baby seals were um floating up onto the co- onto the beach and he started trying to throw them back to save them and another man said to him you know you're never going to save them all like this is mad like there's hundreds of them and he said okay but I'm saving some and you know I think it's sort of like that we can't necessarily always control the big picture we definitely can't especially everything that's happening with politics but in the small microwaves in our lives you know, we could all make a big difference. And imagine if everybody said, in this morning, I'm going to wake up and do like 10 really little evil things. How much that would scare us because of the impact that would have. But actually, if everyone got up and did 10 little positive things, people would kind of laugh at that and say, well, that won't make any difference. Mm. But we'd worry if they were going to do it on the other extreme. That's so true. Isn't that a lovely idea? I think it is. And I also, I don't think you are... evil bit. I don't think you are happy accident I think that a you probably preempted the trend slightly and I think that that's who you are you know having read the book I think that's who you are as a writer you know it's I think that that phrase absence of cynicism is is beautiful and it perfectly sums up William Wolfe and I think you know long may you continue to write like that because I think it's it's uplifting to read it's life affirming to read and a lovely hug it really is it's (laughs) like getting a it was like getting a hug when I'd stopped crying um (laughs) Um, William, as you mentioned, works in the um, as a letter detective at the Dead Letters Depot. I want um, that job so much. Firstly, please tell me that that is an actual job. It is. Thank God. But I mean, it's it's absolutely. I find this absolutely hilarious. But I wrote the whole first draft, not realizing it was a real place. And then, um, I mean, I must have heard of it at some point in the past, this concept of the Dead Letters Depot, because I called it that from the very beginning. But I thought that I had invented 
this world. <laughs> <laughs> and um, then one day I opened up the Guardian newspaper and there was an interview with an actual letter detective who works in Belfast and he was talking about all the incredible things that he has discovered in the post that were way more fantastic and interesting than anything I had imagined from my mind. Um, but it was really incredible. And so people do this, but there's 300 of them and it's this massive, it's called something really unromantic like the Mail Recycling Undeliverable Centre or something. Oh, God. And I'm sure that they're a lot more productive than... <laughs> You know, the gang yeah. in my book who, you know. <laughs> they should have your picture on the wall. Like, they should give you some sort of key to their office, like a I key mean, to the city. Like, oh, they should be honouring you. They should definitely all have bought the book. I want yes. to visit so badly. I keep saying every time I do an interview, I'd really love to go visit the depot, hoping that someone will, you know, reach out to me. Or that there'll be a letter detective in the audience. That's the dream when I'm doing an event. And he just stands yeah. up and is like, like oh, thank you. I am William Wolf. Yeah. <laughs> we have to make that happen. Um... Sorry, I do I'm, have sure, a... I'm sure you could just turn you could just turn up and they'd be delighted <laughs> to have you. Um, so my follow up question to that mm. is: What is it about? What What do you think is behind our enduring love and slight, mm, not sort of fetish, but I think there's a real kind of romanticism about letter writing that yeah. has, that is endured even today when everything is online and everything takes two minutes to read on purpose. What is it about the handwritten letter that that feature, you know, especially within literature? Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, it, it makes me so sad that there are whole generations of people coming up who will never know the thrill of a letter arriving on your mat with your name written yeah. in the hand of someone you love. Like, there's actually nothing more exciting in the world, I think, than that. Um, <laughs> I actually am going to have to take <laughs> a moment. Take a But I think. In this world that we're in now where we can communicate so efficiently and so easily and we have all these devices and ways of reaching out with each other, somehow we've all ended up becoming more disconnected than ever. And so many people are lonelier than they ever were before, even though they have access to thousands of people, you know, all the time. And I think there's something about um, letters. I mean, they're a physical thing you can hold for a start and they carry the essence of the person that sent them to you. But also, um, I think when you write a letter, you're writing from somewhere closer to your subconscious. You know, you're in a really meditative state because it's slow. You know, you can't actually really bat it out. So you're really contemplating what you're going to say and have to be sure that the message that you're sending is going to be received in the way that you intended. You know, there's no kind of time to second guess you know, your reaction. Um, so I think there's something about it that then they're so well considered that when the recipient reads them, you can feel the intention, mm. you know, that was there. And when I first met my partner, Damien, who the book is dedicated to for many, many, many reasons. But um, when we met, he was going off on tour and he sent me a postcard from every city that they played in and it was the most amazing thing because I saw him noticing things in the world that he may never have told me but it gave me this total insight into his whole outlook on the world and the things that he noticed and cared about and made a note of to remember you know it was just so beautiful and I I genuinely think that that really laid the foundations for our relationship because by the time he came back I felt I knew him in this totally different way than I would have if we'd had like four dates mm. <laughs> you know in the interim um, there's just something really special about it the yeah. filter you use oh my god that's so lovely I've got a real lump of it I've met Damien like I'm just so happy for you guys yeah oh he's and he's just been such a wonderful support and anyway he's Go rock! He rocked in. He's <laughs> a musician. That's exciting. Slash sexy. Um, so um, yeah, I mean, we need to all start writing. Will you be my pen pal? Helen? I'd love to be anyone's yeah. pen pal. I know it's like I'm on this letter writing revolution, and um, I wrote a, an article for the Irish Times in Ireland where. 
I finished by saying something like, if anybody writes to me, I promise I'll write back. And people wrote and they oh. sent letters to the Irish Times and they forwarded them on to me. And it's absolutely amazing. That's so lovely. I know, it's you so also, lovely. You also have a newsletter we should point out as well. Hmm, I have. I've never actually sent any news on the newsletter. <laughs> okay, fine. But you have the letters one that people yeah, write. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, that's, that's what you mean. Yeah, oh, that's, yeah, sorry, that's what I meant. Yeah, like... So um, it's a, they call them tiny letters. Um, so it's uh, if you Google like tinyletter.com and we'll forward slash lost letters. Yes, that's post. much better. So yeah, so I've asked um, writers to write the letter they wish they had sent at some point in their life, but that's now lost in time. And then uh, when they send them to me, I post them out to the people who signed up for the mailing list. So they get all sorts of amazing letters that people wish they'd written. Amazing. That's yeah. such a, are you still doing? Is that still going on? Yeah, and it's. Yeah. I mean, hey, we're supposed to submit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really conscious. I haven't written mine yet. I, I really, I really want to. So it's so it's called. But it's what's your? Is it called Lost Letters? Yeah, it's Lost Underscore Letters. Okay. I'm definitely yeah. going to do that as oh, well. Oh, please I've got do. I've a million letters I want to send. Yeah. I know. Trying to narrow down. Are they allowed to be angry letters? Oh, yeah. They're the best kinds. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to narrow Perfect. it down. It's so difficult. I'm like, it's, I'm torn between like my old bedroom and like my ex-boyfriend. It's so difficult. Like writing to your old bedroom. I like it. Yeah. I don't know. Whilst we have you, not that you can go anywhere, um, we'd like to bend your ear about an amazing new service that we've just launched. It's called the Riff Raff Manuscript Shakedown. And it's for any of you who are looking for proper constructive feedback on your writing. It doesn't matter where you are in your writing process. We've got options for everybody at different prices. Because let's face it, nobody goes into writing to become a millionaire. Although J.K. Rowling's done pretty well. And Stephen King. And J.D. Pickles probably earned a bit. Anyway, um, the Riff Raff Manuscript Shakedown is the friendliest manuscript feedback service in town. And if you dream of getting published, we really recommend that you check it out. I mean, we would definitely say that, but still do it. You can find all the details on our website, the-riffraff.com. Um, so obviously you write from both William and Claire's perspectives. And, um, you know, we're, I think dual narratives is kind of quite just an interesting concept to mm. kind of get on board with. Because like, how do you, how do you perfectly, getting into the head of one character is difficult enough without, and I like, I write about myself, so, you know, it's pretty easy, but like, you know what, it's not even easy. But, you know, sort of, how do you, how do you go about getting into each of their heads and making their voices distinctive and developing them as characters and developing their relationship? Like, how do you make wow. that easy? Well, I think, I mean, just if I can go back a step, um, it's really interesting how Claire came into being, or it's really interesting to me because she was never there in my mind at the beginning when I started writing the book. The first thing I came up with for the novel was, um, you know, when I sat down to write, it was that line from the poem, The More Than Kisses, Letters Mingle Souls. So I knew I wanted to write a book that explored that theme. And I started thinking about if you met someone only through their letters and you fell in love with them and then ultimately met them in real life, would they be the person that you thought? Mm. You know, would you have been exposed to a more honest, truthful version of themselves because of the way they'd written to you? Or would they have been able to curate this fantastic version of themselves that then they couldn't live up to in real life? So I was really fascinated by that. And so that got me thinking about, you know, who could be writing letters to someone that they hadn't met, that that person could fall in love with them. So Winter actually was the first starting point in her writing these letters. And then I needed somebody to find them. So I asked myself, 
where if she just posted these letters, where would they end up? And then I thought I'd invented the dead letters. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so that's where William came into being because I thought, oh, there could be a man working there and he finds her letters and he becomes really fascinated by her. So when I started doing my writing workshop that I worked on the first draft of the novel in, the first thing I wrote was the first chapter of the book. And um, I thought that I had the kind of big picture worked out that there was William Wolfe, there was Winter, there was the depot, the end. And then... Um, like a couple of weeks in Michelle Roberts um, who was the facilitator in the group and my writing mentor now said to me that she was really interested to know why these letters were so important to him you know what was going on in his life Mm. that made him so open to falling in love with this enigmatic stranger and what you know what was his experience of love beforehand and it really got me thinking about it you know why these would have such an impact And from there, somehow Claire came into being, you know, that he had a wife at home and that it was sort of a reaction to his disappointment in his own marriage that caused him to seek something else out. Um, So I wrote this, um, I wrote the first chapter about Claire and I thought I was done. And I was like, okay, so I've explained that. (laughs) 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 I've done what my mentor asked me. We all know now why he's so interested in in winter and we leave that there. And then I came back into the workshop and the the amazing people in my class kept saying to me, but hold on, where's Claire? You know, well, what's going on with her? And I was like, oh, no, I'm finished with her. Yeah. You know, it's fine. We've um, we've established the whole scenario. And they're like, no, 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 no. We really want to know, like, what's going on? Like, we, you've, we've met her now and we care about her. And it was just this amazing thing where you realise that actually your characters have sort of come to life and... Um, people are were invested. Yeah. So um, I was like, okay, so maybe Claire is sticking around. And then I got really into the idea of sharing both their perspectives on the relationship because I always think, you know, it's really, you know, amazing but kind of heartbreaking that you know you might be friends with a couple and then they break up and you choose a side. Mm. You know, that's it. You know, you have to. Um, if it was your girlfriend and she's broken up with someone, he's dead to us now. You know. <laughs> And you only ever really often experience one person's perspective on a relationship as to what's happening. So I really thought it was this amazing opportunity to look at that and see how they were both reacting to the same things and to understand, you know, the two perspectives. So they became quite real to me quite clearly whenever, like I sat down to write one or the other you know, it was really easy for me to access their voice because they felt very distinctive in my mind at that point. Did they, did did you write kind of all of did you do it kind of in the order of the story or obviously like you just said how that kind of they came to be but yeah. or were you writing did you write kind of like Claire's whole narrative and then William's no, whole narrative it would really terrify you if you saw how <laughs> scattered my writing approach is I wrote the first chapter and then I wrote the end scene I always had that image in my mind of how the book was going to end mm. And um, and then I just went back and forth all the time. So I would just randomly write chapters. And then I ended up with whatever, 14 chapters that were all over the place. <laughs> and I had to somehow piece them together. And I rearranged the order and I then worked out, oh, I need a bridge between these two because nothing's happened. You know, they're too far apart. Um, so after my first draft, I mean, I changed seasons every second chapter. It was utter <laughs> madness because they were written <laughs> so much out of sequence. And I said after that, I would never do that again. You know, the next time I write a book, I'm going to be really good. I'm going to just start at the very beginning and work my way through and I did the exact same thing I wrote the first chapter last chapter and then I worked my way to the middle I think I think you're an absolute genius to have constructed (laughs) the relationship that you have between William and Claire and to not have had that as your starting point I'm absolutely blown away because that was my favourite part of the book to know that that came sort of 
retrospectively or secondary well, I think it's just in, in, so impressive well from thank you so much I think for me the big thing that I've taken away from the writing of this book um is that the work only happens for me when I create the opportunity for it to happen. I think if I had sat down... Amen. (laughs) But I think if I had sat down and said, I'm going to start writing this book when I work out what this story is, it would never have been written because it actually all only became clear to me through the writing. Um, And I know that there are amazing writers who I'm really jealous of who can sit down and plot out the whole thing and have Excel charts and post-it notes and all sorts going on and then they write the book that they know is going to work I'm always sort of going in into the dark and I think if I didn't write like that I would never write because I never know what's going to happen before it does Mm. I mean for me that's the most exciting part about it I find if I do know that I have a plot point to have to write sometimes I end up I feel writing like a reporter instead of writing creatively because I'm basically just telling the story as opposed to writing the story yeah the te- I think there tends to be a bit of a block there, though, doesn't there? Because, um, well, that's that, that's my experience of it. Is like you, it would be so much easier to kind of have it all to know what you're doing. Mm. But like the the joy of the writing process is, is the stuff that comes unexpectedly. And like, definitely, but, but like that kind of the sitting down and and like you know people will think, well, I'm not ready to write it yet, and it's like, well, oh, but you don't know what you're actually writing yet. And like, I know, and that's, it's, yeah, it's. I, I think you need to like get over that first barrier. Definitely, I think I don't actually believe in writer's block. I know that that's. I agree. Um, you know, people sometimes get upset when I say that because they think, oh, well, just because you haven't had it doesn't mean it's not real. But I genuinely think, if you go and sit down and actually write even if you're not writing the thing that was your intention you will work your way into the work you know it's all just mind games that you're Mm. playing with yourself Um, and sometimes you know I'll really genuinely be thinking I have no idea where this is going I'm not feeling this at all I'm not in the right headspace for this and I'll just say I'll just write one sentence and then I can stop you know because at least then I've tried today and I'll just I'll just write one sentence and then I'll stop but um then you just do another one and do another one and maybe it could be half a page in when you realise oh okay okay I know actually what I'm going to write about today but you have to, it's like warm it's, I mean no one sits down probably at the piano to perform an amazing you know a concerto without doing some scales or something to warm up yeah exactly like you know you don't you, you shouldn't start running without yeah some stretches so yeah. we seem to think that we're going to sit down and just produce just like publish things. quality the amazing first, the first yeah thing you type is kind of the thing that's going to get published yeah have, 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 have you um have you, either of you guys sort of tried the sort of um morning pages idea uh i haven't I, I really struggle with the fact that i think i'm not a morning person <laughs> but i know that it probably i work well in the mornings but it's just that i've always felt like a night owl so i have this block about thinking i'll just get up and i'll be really productive first thing in the morning so ever since i, I signed my publishing deal i've basically had this battle with myself <laughs> of trying to make myself treat it like a day job but i just can't do it you're more are you more of a nighttime writer i'm more of a randomly at any point during the day but i can make my <laughs> do it writer I have no system it's terrible and that's also like hugely reassuring <laughs> but like the, the morning pages thing like Julia Cameron wrote in an artist way she was she said that you should get up and the first thing that you should do in the morning before you start to write is write kind of three pages of longhand 
about any topic. It doesn't need to be about your story. It doesn't need to be. It can just be musings on anything. I wrote about my dreams quite a lot um, when I was doing it, and and it, just to kind of loosen yourself up mm. so that when you so that you kind of get into the flow of stuff, and so you, you then you're ready to like kind of warm up. Yeah, basically. I think that's a great yeah. idea. I mean, I can see why that would be so valuable. <laughs> I just I, I I just always have to really psych myself up to do it, you know. And I think that's actually something. There's something really liberating about taking the heat out of I'm going to write now, mm. you know, because sometimes, especially when I was working on the second book, I would feel like I'm working on my next novel. This is a serious thing and I you know must go to work and it really you can really psych yourself out whereas if you're just sort of you know playing um Mm. so many authors I think play with their first one and then suddenly get really freaked out with the second one where it's like well it worked for the first one so maybe (laughs) do that again but you do do have to hone your approach don't you because like because if you know if you were to you know you learn so much with your first experience Mm. that if you were to then go into the second one with the same kind of level of chaos like I felt like my first one was chaotic I did not manage my mind well and like and you know so it's it is a learning curve and you have to learn how to be a bit more Mm. that's um, true often you have a deadline as well (laughs) yeah it does not help (laughs) and those bastards talking about winter again and that and that that Mm. element of the book when I was reading it I thought it could almost tip into magical realism Mm. that part of it there's something so magical ethereal about it enigmatic was a great word that you used did you ever feel tempted to kind of go down that route and actually say hey this novel could really work because it could it could have worked with that magical realism I think it's so interesting that you say that because I think when I started writing I thought it probably would be magical realism Mm. like I genuinely thought that's because it was so fantastical and kind of ridiculous you know I, I kept thinking there was this big elephant in the room of but how does he find the letters <laughs> you know there's thousands of letters coming through this is totally unfeasible you know there has to be some magic and then I just reassure myself with the fact that magical things actually happen in life all the time we just call them something else mm. so I just decided that was true and I just kept going <laughs> um but I think actually the why it didn't end up becoming a like magical realism proper is because of the relationship with William and Claire Mm. Um, and that actually grounded it then into a much more realistic thing so I remember when I sent out my agent pitch letter I said I I hoped the book was a cross between Angela Carter and Richard Yates (laughs) I've not read either so (laughs) I'm sure Um, it's probably that actually but someone told me that was a terrible description that that would just you know put everybody off because Angela's like proper magical realism and Richard Yates just talks about really bleak you know relationship (laughs) breakdowns So it just sounded like this horrible concoction that I was like, oh, I've really worked this out. But um, yeah, so I think it could have been maybe a different thing. And I feel like even with the second book, there are, there's the same sort of essence of the kind of magical nature of life creeping in without anyone doing any spells or yeah and like but like, if you think if you think about it things are quite magical really if you care to notice the things that are lovely and, and magical so it's the, it's, the, it's the absence of cynicism thing again yeah. <laughs> like it a lot. Yeah. Um, so setting obviously plays a really important role you know obviously you're from Ireland and so London and Dublin both feature and Claire and Claire and William both flee their marital home when kind of like the going gets tough. Um, how much did setting influence the story uh, or was it kind of the story influencing the setting? Well, it's interesting because I think with your first book, in my case anyway, you have to kind of jump on as many lifeboats as you can to help you get to the other side. So when I thought, OK, I want William and Claire to go away for a weekend together, the easiest place for me to take them to was Dublin. 
And at the time, I could do that with the comfort of thinking no one would ever read this. And then suddenly, when I realised people from Dublin were going to read it after it was published, I was like, I wish I had spent more time really thinking about this. Um, because it did, I think there is a big responsibility about writing about real places. Um, so I think I sort of accidentally chose the places and only realised retrospectively how important they were to the narrative. And... Um, it's it's been a really interesting thing because so much of the writing of the first book was instinctive that I've sort of retrospectively now, you know, learned to talk about and understand the choices I made. But at the time, it was total impulse. Um, but I think it is hugely important. And I remember doing an amazing writing exercise with I did a short story class with an amazing writer called Alba Arica. And um, she asked us to do this exercise where we had to imagine a woman was bumping into an ex-partner that she still really loved and hadn't seen him for years and write their exchange. But you had to write it first with a meeting on the Piccadilly line at rush hour. And then you had to write it with the meeting in a totally silent museum where there was nobody else. So you could see wow. how oh, actually... How setting makes such yeah. a... Gosh. And it seems really obvious, but actually it was so illuminating thinking about how you can actually already achieve so much of what you want your story to do through where you place it mm. and for me it had always felt almost like a secondary thing the story was happening and it had to happen somewhere but that really changed my thinking on that about how actually you can the setting can do so much work for you mm. yeah there's um there's um like we've from speaking to different authors and stuff i realized how many people try these different kind of exercises or how or how much exploratory writing kind of goes on and um, kind of around the topic and that's not something that I've tried with the novel that I'm writing at the moment but like it just seems like you know kind of in terms of world creation and you know like putting your characters in different scenarios like Emma Flint told us that she had like you know pages and Leo Carew yesterday mm. he told us that he had like you know these, these huge documents with detailing all of these facts about the worlds that they've created and and like you know, and I wonder whether you had anything like that or whether there's any any sort of exercises that you did. Uh... I have none of that. <laughs> cool. I'm pleased that not everyone is as thorough as those guys. I think um, I made a joke at one point that, which was true, but that every word I had written was in that book. You know, I used all my gold. There was nothing left over on a page anywhere. Um, I think in when I did that writing workshop with Michelle, she would often give us writing exercises and I would always end up using them in the actual book. Um but I, but I do a lot of thinking off the page, I guess. So I, al I always know more about the world and the characters than I write down. But I've never, I'm, I'm sure I would be a better writer if I did. But the thing of, um, you know, just taking my characters and writing a short story about them that I wouldn't use in the book terrifies me because I'm always so focused on trying to progress the story along. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure it would be really worthwhile, but um, I don't, I don't do it. <laughs> just putting all the good stuff in the book. Yeah, that's totally fair enough. Like, I'm pleased you said that. And um, one of the things that I just wanted to pick up quickly with you as well is um, the character of Steve. Oh, I love him. He's my favourite. It was one of my faves. <laughs> and Steve, um, to describe him kindly, I've written he is a Lausch anarchic Peter Pan. Would that be? <laughs> I think that's pretty fair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's a bit of a layabout, isn't he? I don't know. Like, I d he sounds like well, one of my yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he is your type, mate. Um, but the reason I bring him up is because William is also a sort of failed novelist as well and 
I think for writers, we're always striving for something a little bit more than the lives that we have, you know, whether it's call it transcendental or whether we just kind of want to leave our mark on the world. I don't know, for, for a lot of writers we talk to, there's a real kind of drive to kind of have your life and then have something you've created. Whereas Steve is just so happy in his own skin. He's happy with the life that he leads. And I wondered whether that was a conscious decision to introduce him to sort of um, to, to play with that idea a little bit. Well, I think that's really interesting. For me, Steve Stevie came into being because I wanted to see Will, William outside of his relationship with Claire as a way of understanding him and who he was when they first met and how he became, you know, this kind of like, you know, young fogey that he kind of has become. Um, so, and I think it's really interesting that you make friends when you're a teenager that stay your friends for life. But if you met as adults, you would have nothing in common, <laughs> you know? So I find that really fascinating anyway. So I really wanted them to have this kind of colourful friend who you would never, who Claire and Stevie totally clash, you know, they really, they don't understand each other whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But I thought it he was sort of a foil to understand the kind of William of his younger years, who was a bit more of a dreamer and more ambitious and more creative and maybe um, to help us see him through Claire's eyes. So that was kind of where he came from. But that, he works so well in, in doing that as well. He, he's such a lovely little bit of almost sort of comedic relief, yeah. almost. You know, he's yeah. just so richly drawn. And, oh, that's yeah, so nice. You'd you love him in real life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so finally, what, you've mentioned the second book a couple of times. What's next for you, Helen? So I just finished the first draft of the second book. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thank you exciting. so much. Um, and it is exciting. It's um, it's a different, definitely a different thing writing the second book. Um, I feel like I've been able to maybe take some of the lessons I learned, you know, while, as you were saying, in the chaotic way of writing the first one. Um, I felt like a bit more in control this time and I was able to write it in a shorter period of time. So it's exciting, yeah, yeah. to kind of move on to the next thing. Did, how How was that kind of transition from... How did you start writing your second one immediately after writing the No, I didn't. Time off? Um, the editing, during the editing experience, um, I sort of stayed, I, I avoided starting something new because I didn't want to kind of be right. At the time, I thought I wouldn't be able to write the two books at the same time without kind of muddying them in, the, in my mind. I've sort of changed my mind about that since. And I think that actually it's probably good to have a project on the go so that it takes the heat out of the thing that's really important. What a great tip. I think that's a really, yeah, really great way looking at it. I think if you can just sort of keep them in different places in your mind. And I've come up with a new plan this week, which probably won't work. (laughs) But um, I'm really conscious when I'm working on the big project of... You know, what I've heard someone else refer to as, you know, the slutty new idea, you know, that kind of is like tempting you from the corner. Yeah. And um, I began to feel like I was maybe having these ideas for other things or, you know, threads for other stories that I couldn't work on really because they were too much of a distraction. But they were becoming, you know, like a one line word document that was going into the bowels of my computer and would never surface again. So um, I bought a typewriter during the week and a, a filing cabinet. So now when I have one of these ideas, I'm going to type them up really badly on an actual page and put them into the file. I love that. I so love that. That's yeah. so William as well. I, yeah, it is. And I just think there's something about them being a physical thing that makes them have a bit more of a life than mm. just being a lost document. And it just means as well that at some point when I want to work on something new, I can go and just like kind of flick through this file and go, oh, you know, that thing I thought about when I met Amy and Rosie about the blackbirds, you know, I could write that today, you know, and it just it feels oh, like a kind of a body of work then as opposed to them just going off into, into the ether yeah, that's so true yeah. and also and also like how lovely like you know if, 
where, where some of them will get written, some of them won't, and some of them will remain these like short documents that were ideas that you had, and like how what a lovely thing to be able to look back on. I think so. Yeah, that's and as lovely. Well, I spent so much time in front of the computer, and I associated with work, mm. and I think we all really struggle a bit with you know feeling like you have to be doing your best work all the time. So there's something very liberating about the fact that this is just on a typewriter, typed really badly. I can't edit it. It's really just kind of a brain spill of something um, that then I can come back to later if I want to. Oh my God, do you Ooh, mind if I, tr- if I do that too? Of course, I'd love that. I love that idea so yeah. much. Oh my goodness, and you've got a typewriter, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> and a filing cabinet. Oh, Helen, it's been just such a pleasure oh, to talk pleasure. to you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. The Lost Letters of William Wolfe is just beautiful. Oh, and thank, thank you. you so much for writing it and for coming and talking to us. Oh, thank it. you for having me. It's been amazing. The Riff Raff Podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. Come say hey at the-riffraff.com.